0: This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis.
2: Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer, and collectibles, both digital and physical with on chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, it's been a crazy week. I have a lot of stuff to talk to you about. We only got a little bit of time. Let's get into it. This was the week of AI creating fake people getting exposed. So two stories caught my eye. I wanted to get your opinion on them. One was there was a whole slew of fake writers that were listed on Sports Illustrated's website for creating content. And then people started to dig in to say, who are these writers? And it turned out they didn't exist. They were all basically AI creations. Similarly, there was an event, I believe it's called Devternity, which is not my favorite name for an event, that as we all know, there's like not enough diversity, especially gender diversity in a lot of tech conferences. So what did they do? They just made up a bunch of female speakers that didn't exist, put them on their website as if to say, hey, here you go. And some of them even had AI generated portraits. It feels like This is the kind of reckoning we're coming for when people start just utilizing AI willy nilly to sort of fill out challenges and needs that they have. What are your thoughts on fake persona gate?
3: Great use of willy nilly. And I think that it's really concerning. So we've talked before for the last several months around sort of the rise of deepfakes and the fact that anyone really can be deepfaked. A year ago, it was hard. You had to be like a computer professional. Like I could deepfake you in 30 minutes and I'm not even good at like using computers like that. It's really easy. I see it happen all the time. And like anything, there's a good side and there's a not so good side. And I think what you just sort of covered off on is the not so good side. It's so easy to use these tools that anyone can do it. And then the flip side is people aren't yet conditioned to really be able to determine what's AI and what's not. And I think that like that is something that's actually coming because I can look at a picture of be like that's AI, not with 100% accuracy, but like, you know, generally, because I sort of understand what to look for. But the vast majority of people like don't yet think instinctively that it's AI. And I think we're entering this era where like you can't necessarily like trust what you're seeing. You can't trust your eyes in the way that people have been since the dawn of time. So it's not great to see. And it's interesting because I also don't really understand why an organizer or sort of a reputable organization would use like AI generated personas and post them publicly because I just feel like you're going to get called out.
2: It's so easy. It reminds me a bit, I think, was it the FTC who started to say to influencers that when you get paid for SpawnCon, you have to indicate that you've been paid for this promotion, right? And it feels like it took a kind of a while for that to trickle down through all of the different influencer and creator economies. We still probably don't see it with 100% of people claiming that they've been paid. But I think anyone who's big enough knows that if you're getting paid, you have to market as paid promotion, or else you might get dinged for it. And there could be fines and penalties. It really feels like this has to be the next kind of layer of AI regulation, which is if you're using it in any commercial purpose at the least, you know, maybe an art's different, but for a commercial purpose, Just throw on there that this article was written by AI. Like, I've seen it a lot. I don't think it's the worst thing. But what Sports Illustrated did, and they're claiming it was a partner, but it was like clearly on their site. But the fact that they created writers' names to try to sort of say, oh, no, we still have a staff is the thing that I'm just the most worried about with this stuff. It just feels like a slippery slope that we've already gone way too far down. We're not getting back up.
3: Yeah. I don't know, Sam. That's a little defeatist. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) think that there will just be greater realization of when things are written by AI and people will be able to see more like you sort of understand when people use Photoshop now. And like, that's sort of part of mainstream consciousness. I think we need to build that muscle for mainstream consciousness. And people who are using AI for sort of creating fake personas, whether they're journalists or speakers at a conference, yeah, they're going to get called out for it. So you know, we do have watchdogs and things of that nature for a reason. And I think we're going to see the sort of public react not well to faking individual people.
2: Yeah, one of my chat groups blew up like two days ago because someone shared a link where you could basically design your perfect AI girlfriend. And it was really scary what was going on there. So I think this is a space that we're going to watch and probably talk about in the future. I do want to move to another actually AI-related story. I don't know if you've been paying attention to pika.art. It's been getting a lot of chatter on um, Twitter this week. It's another one of the sort of text-to-video tool sets now it's in waiting list pika.art for anyone who wants to check it out kind of reminds me of runway ml and some of the kind of cool work that stable diffusion is doing right now but it seems like that we're just going to see more and more of this ability for you to either upload a photo or just describe something and actually get a usable quality video have you guys started playing with these tools even more
3: we are all over it i actually haven't personally played with pika.art which is on my to-do list for this weekend but yeah, I think I've mentioned this a little bit. We have a weekly challenge where we try a new sort of format of generative art, all things that are not client related, all sort of fun projects, kind of brainstormy, And it's been an awesome way to like bring our team up to speed and to try new things because there's a new tool every week. Sometimes we're like, oh my God, this is an amazing one. We need to find ways to incorporate this and bring this to partners. And a lot of times we're like, oh yeah, the demo video was great, but actually it doesn't work for XYZ reasons. So maybe Art should be the next one we play with.
2: If you can get past the wait list, you can try it. Final story, Avery, is you probably don't know this, but there is going to be a Dogecoin satellite in space. So Doge1 is getting closer to launch. It'll be the first satellite to launch in orbit through SpaceX, of course, because of Elon. And I believe Elon even tweeted about this a while ago. The entire satellite being put up into space is paid for in Dogecoin from the community. And supposedly, it's going to be broadcasting video and ads back to Earth. And there will be a screen on the satellite that will be playing the doge dog and doge ads to our friends in space.
3: That's crazy. Um, Sly. Sly, come. My dog is actually a, a doge. Let me go get him so we
2: can. All right, we can get...
3: Oh, here he is. Good boy. Come on, Sly.
2: Oh, my God. Avery has pulled up her dog, Sly. Sly which literally is the doge dog. This is incredible. We'll have to clip this for everyone because literally Avery owns the doge dog.
3: You don't say, this is my (laughs) little doge. This is Sly, who we did get pre-Dogecoin boom. Um, Seems like he likes the mic, but Sly, would you like to go to space? He says he doesn't know, (laughs) Um, but I am all for it. That does seem like big news. And I will also say that people every single day when they see Sly, they say doge dog Um, (laughs) and yeah. What do you think, buddy?
2: All right. Sly in space, guys. We are going to start a GoFundMe. (laughs) Not that we want Sly to actually go to space, but we just want people to pay us in Doge.
3: He would, though. He's a well-traveled dog. Yeah. We accept Doge in this household.
2: Exactly. All right, Avery. After the break, we are going to be back. We have Mike Quigley, CMO of Niantic, coming. Niantic is the company behind some amazing games, the most famous being Pokemon Go, which was such a sensation years ago. Still going strong. Really excited to hear Mike's take on... AR, mixed reality, gaming, all things sort of phone. What do you think about the Apple Vision Pro and the Oculus 3? It's going to be a good conversation right after the break.
0: All right. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash GenC.
2: All right, we are back. We are here with Mike Quigley. Mike is the CMO of Niantic. If you hadn't heard of Niantic, you're going to learn a lot right now, but I guarantee most of you have played a Niantic game or experience. I personally was a big Ingress fan way back in the day, which was one of the first kind of AR mobile games that was really a very passionate community that got people outside. Niantic is also very well known for Pokemon Go, amongst many other titles that we'll talk about and some newer releases that are just hitting the market now. But Mike, I would just love to know What got you to Niantic? What was your career arc? We always love to sort of understand how people got to today.
1: Sure, no problem. Well, thank you, Sam and Avery, for having me on. I'm excited to be here, so thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I won't bore you with all the details, but I'll say that I've had a blessed career and it continues to roll on. Early in my career, I was able to kind of find my my jam, my thing, I knew that communications and marketing and user insights and that sort of thing was kind of what I was naturally kind of good at and intellectually curious about. And then I matched that with basically good timing, I'll say, where I landed my first job out of college at the Walt Disney Company, working in the home entertainment division. And from there on, I basically have stayed kind of within entertainment fields for my career. So to apply kind of the marketing discipline, but primarily focusing it on products and services that are focused on entertainment has kind of been, I would say, kind of a dream career, to be honest. I was at Disney for five years. I was at Electronic Arts for 11 years. Spent some time at YouTube, you know, for a couple of years before I transferred within Google from YouTube over to this little fledgling incubated um, division called Niantic, and then um, have helped John Hanke, our CEO, Phil Kesslin, our CTO, kind of the co-founders of the company, spin it out in the fall of 2015. And now 12 years later, you know, we're private, we're independent, and um, yeah, things are rocking and rolling. So I feel like I've had a great arc. I've had a lot of great mentors and coaches along the way. Ann Daly was this amazing marketer that I learned early on from at Disney and the mentors and kind of coaches along the way have been really, I feel fortunate. And I just try to pay that forward with the teams and the people that I bring onto my team. So yeah, I feel luckily on my career
0: arc.
3: <laughs> it sounds like it's been quite a journey and you've done so many incredible things. And, you know, your time at Niantic has probably also been really, really interesting. Niantic was one of the first movers in a lot of these sort of new technologies You know, when I think anyone thinks about AR, like the first thing that comes to mind is Pokemon Go. It's like when that moment happened, that really opened people's eyes to the potential of AR. Can you share a little bit about the journey of Pokemon Go? Like what the state of AR experiences are today? Because I know you guys have made a ton of progress. Since the world went in a total craze for it
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely i appreciate sam's kind of unprompted open around being an ingress fan early on i mentioned that time at google briefly when we were incubating this we had the support of the google founders to give this thing a shot you know john hankey our ceo had spent a lot of time on the geo side you know working in the google maps division the geo division for almost 10 years as a PM. And then he led product under Marissa Meyer before she went to Yahoo. And then he ran the whole division with Brian McClendon, who's also now with us here at Niantic. And before that, you know, John had a couple gaming startups. In fact, my connection with John is we went to business school together in the mid nineties. We always wanted to work together. It took us 20 years to, to have that opportunity, but Niantic, it's kind of a perfect if you think about John's life work, not to speak for him, but, you know, he had this gaming curiosity, did a lot of early coding as when he was younger and then kind of got this geofocus with uh, this company Keyhole that became basically Google Earth and was acquired by Google. And so Niantic was this kind of natural step for him. And so for those of us that were there with him to build this from scratch, those early days were really valuable, right? Like we had two apps and we were always mobile centric, always mobile centric. So our first two apps, one was called Field Trip. Kind of a virtual tour guide. And the other was exactly to Sam's point. It was our first mobile geo-based mobile game called Ingress. And Ingress was, I like to tell this to a lot of our new antics. We call Niantic new employees, new antics.
3: Very cute.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It wasn't, I would love to come up with that creative label. That wasn't my brainchild. So Ingress was basically particularly kind of the main R&D sandbox, if you will. Not just for the product teams that were basically trying to figure out, hey, can we come up with game actions that will get people off the couch and out of their home or their flat or their apartment and actually go outside together to enjoy something. But also you think about every function, legal, business development, marketing. We were all experimenting with this, right? We had some similar things. You think about the competitive environment we were in, you know, with Angry Birds and a lot of the successful mobile games in kind of that 2012, 2013 timeframe. There's some of the things that, like, our customer support teams were dealing with that were the same things that other mobile free to play competitors were dealing with. But we had some unique things, like, hello, Niantic, this beautiful mural that you've got as a location in your game that you're driving players to is actually on a private condominium complex. So we're <laughs> going to actually need you to remove this POI. So, just things like that. And marketing was no exception. We also used that time to kind of hone our craft and figure out what were the things for, for us. In terms of go to market in terms of user engagement that we could do to figure out how does this geolocation gaming thing work and one of the big outputs from that learning was around our live events which for now if you've ever been to a pokemon go go fest event or a go tour event or even our monthly community days where we've got community ambassadors all around the world that host local meetups basically so people can get together and enjoy pokemon go the reality is we would have never got to that point without this R&D sandbox known as Ingress. And so those first three, four or five years were very formative for the company. And so summer 2016, you know, again, every day we feel humbled, we feel blessed. We're so close with our partners at the Pokemon company. None of us saw that coming, by the way. I mean, that was definitely a cultural moment and we're really proud of it. We're also just humbled and blessed that this early work and the mission of the company, getting people outdoors to explore and discover things, maybe get a few steps in, a little physical movement, and of course, hopefully do it together. That has been the mission since day one. It's what binds every Niantic. Even people that have since left the company, we've been a very mission-based company from the start. And I think that's the thing we're all proud of, not just John, but all of us at the company. It's kind of, we live and breathe that.
2: I want to stay on this for a second, but it also reminds me, just as you were talking, you know, there was this very quirky movement in the 90s, because I was like in the emerging tech world at the time. I'm on the older side, I guess. But where all of these like kind of coders who were spending a lot of time in dark rooms in front of computers would also go out and do geocaching and like, you know, discoveries, the scavenger hunts where people could leave an object and just give you some lat long and have to go find it. And it only connected the dots now to think that how many of those folks probably were also doing that, that were in the Niantic team and said, you know, discovery and getting out into the world and what I want to zoom in on is just the frenzy from those days in, I guess, 2016 when it launched. I mean, all the news stories of just thousands of people rushing to try to find, you know, their Pokemon. I mean, it almost felt like parents were like having terror, the idea of, what is my kid even doing? But on the ground, how are you guys feeling yet? You said it wasn't expected to have, blow up like that. What does it mean to have that kind of a success? And what were your feelings during the moment?
1: You know, the coolest thing... Kenji Masuda with Creatures and Game Freak, he's told this story before about these early days of Pokemon Go. And one of the things that Masuda-san has reminded us of, and it really comes back to the heart of how the whole thing got created. Pokemon itself as a brand, it was inspired when he was a child with insect collection. And he's got some great stories on that. And he's told those stories long before Pokemon Go. But If you think about how Pokemon Go was really the first true manifestation of that original idea, because it wasn't just encountering these pocket monsters on a handheld device or that sort of thing, but you were now going into the real world. And the different biomes or the environments, you know, if you're close to water, like here in the Embarcadero in San Francisco in those early days, this was the place to get Gyarados, right? (laughs) Because it was water Pokemon versus in other environments and other biomes where we could have rock or different types of Pokemon was phenomenal. So it really was in some ways, I mean, not destiny, but it is the true kind of opportunity to help the IP and the franchise be what it deserves to be. And again, we're humbled and blessed every day. We work very closely with the Pokemon company. That partnership is really strong and we feel proud that we could be part of that continued growth of what's an amazing, amazing intellectual property.
3: Yes, it is. So sort of shifting gears to how many intellectual properties are expanding their digital presence and expanding their digital reach you all have been believers in the blockchain i've read some stuff that you all have sort of been supporting that over the past few years what's your sort of personal take mike and how do you think the company is thinking about this like next evolution of the internet with sort of ownable digital collectibles
1: i mean generally speaking we've been experimenting a lot in this area we did some stuff at south by southwest we've done some other activations tied to a couple of our ingress events where we would kind of test and iterate. I think generally we're fans of kind of the community use case which I think is still kind of untapped that notion of what can blockchain do to help bring communities together and some of it might be for the classic like peacocking with my friends because I've got this you know special unique you know nft or or I have this accomplishment that's been recognized and it's unique to me but I think in a world where we see ugc user generated content exploding across so many platforms and worldwide and that sort of thing. I think blockchain, we feel it still plays an important role. I think it's still trying to find its way in terms of what is the thing that IP holders feel comfortable with, that gamers feel comfortable with in the gaming use case. So I think we're all, as an industry, we're still kind of finding our way, but we still think that it it has potential. But we're being cautious. Again, it's a lot more test and iterate, experiment, see what does and doesn't work. So we're slowly staying on that path. But it hasn't been a major focus for us I would acknowledge.
2: And Mike, you know, post-Pokémon Go, I believe you did some stuff with Marvel. You have a new game, Monster Hunter. You guys have now a bunch of titles. As we look to this future where the Oculus 3 is, is out now and the Apple Vision Pro is coming, and the idea of like mixed reality, which frankly was always my favorite reality, is like just more present for us. Where do you see kind of this idea of one, just like layering, information, gameplay, art, all of the stuff on the world around us. What do you think that maybe brands or users may not be yet thinking about that makes it exciting to you? Sure. Yeah, I mean,
1: there's two things that come to mind on that question, Sam. I mean, number one is a more niantic specific answer. And then I can talk a little bit about the opportunity for brands and companies and even for consumers. From a niantic perspective, you know, we probably look like a mobile free-to-play game publisher on the outside. But we have aspirations to get the AR tools, the geo tools, the things that we build all of our games on. Monster Hunter Now, Pikmin Bloom, our partnership with Nintendo on that product. It's not really a game, it's more of a walking app, but it's very fun and delightful if you haven't tried it, check it out. Of course, Ingress, of course, Pokemon Go, all of that is built on our, we call it Lightship. It's our Lightship platform. So that is kind of with Unity devs in mind. We've also got kind of a web-based version on that. We acquired a company called Eighth Wall, coming up on two years now. they've been part of the niantic family and so we're trying to also bring those tools over into web environments to make it you know not quite no code yet but kind of much more easier and lightweight for web devs to leverage these capabilities so my point is is that maybe on the outside looking in we look like a mobile free-to-play game publisher but what we really want to do is enable third-party developers or brands or companies to actually build the next pokemon go or to build the next kind of amazing experience so for niantic that has always been part of kind of the, the journey. You didn't hear about it in the early days because John and Phil and the team knew that we had to find some compelling use cases to see if anyone would want to use these tools. And obviously, gaming has been a use case that we have really you know found. But we know that there's a lot of other opportunity. The other thing I'd say as it relates to Niantic strategy, you know, we've been early on to this point you think about the things we announced, I believe it was over three years ago, we had a partnership with Qualcomm on reference design for things like head-mounted devices and these types of things. And there's nothing I'm going to announce today around anything that we're doing specifically with Meta or Apple or anyone else. But safe to say that we're a player in that space. We think that our vision for kind of the what we call the AR map of the world is a very important one. John has gone on record you know, multiple times, including when we officially launched Lightship three years ago, November, that we believe in open standards and that we want to be really inclusive and that sort of thing. So that's kind of who we are as a company. And so, yeah, I think we're going to have a role to play there and it won't just be as, as a content provider. Of course, you know, people want to bring our games onto these systems and that sort of thing. And we'll have some things to announce soon on that front. But I think more importantly, we feel we have a responsibility to help, you know, those partners and those companies kind of bring this technology to life. And so that's a good segue for kind of the, you know, from a brand or a company or even a user standpoint, like what's to come. I mean, the opportunity to think about with your permission (laughs) as a user for us as a company or other companies to overlay relevant information to you about where you are and the time that you're in and maybe the things that you're looking to do. And the obvious examples are things like, where can I get a good cup of coffee? You know, if I'm in downtown Paris or in Taipei City. But the fun imaginative part of it is, well, what are other ways that you can bring your world to life? And I think we've got this use case in Pokemon Go that's kind of an obvious one, which is Well, if I can, you know, have a little fun on my dog walk or I can uh, incentivize my 14 year old who, uh, God bless them, you know, they're having fun on their console or their PC and or, you know, that sort of thing on the couch. But hey, let's go outside. Let's go to the park. Let's capture a Pokemon or get into a four player monster hunter battle uh, with a couple other players. You know, that kind of stuff is also fun. But there's so many applications and things you can do when you think about digital objects, kind of the things that are important to people or that people choose that they want to engage with overlaid into the real world. It's kind of cool how the original business plan of the company is well-positioned. I mean, that, it's been over 12 years, 14 years actually, since the company was incubated in Google. And so that was the original idea is how do we marry that digital world with the physical world? And that's still at the heart of everything we do. So those are things that I think brands can get excited about because if you're a retailer like Target or you know, you're know, you a specialty shop or you, know, you can think about all sorts of different examples, there's enterprise use cases that are also gonna be very relevant. It's really kind of mind-blowing and kind of overwhelming actually you know so you really do have to pause and think about okay what are the basics what are the things that i can do that will really add value or bring joy or provide utility or efficiency or that sort of thing and i think the answer is it's all of the above it's just a matter of where do we want to start and we've certainly started paving that road at least as it relates to gaming use cases for sure
3: i love that you just said bring joy because i think that that is something that we don't talk enough about outside of the holiday season where joy is very top of mind And I think a lot of the tools that your team has built, they do bring joy and they do surprise and delight users and allow these new experiences that sort of mix reality. So, you know, you're in an interesting spot here as the CMO of Niantic what are some of the use cases that you're most proud of? You think that, you know, brands that have really embraced, because like you just said, there's so many different like places to play, so many different explorations, so many things to do. Do you have like one or two that might be, you know, your favorite use cases? Because a question we hear many times from our partners is just like, where do I start with this type of thing?
1: Right, right. Yeah, great question. Um, Two things come to mind. I think this is less of a brand kind of oriented question. It's more of a, just a, a basic consumer thought. I mentioned it before, so it's a little redundant, but I think it matters. You know, getting people together in a public space on a Saturday afternoon to do something together at a time where the world feels sometimes more divisive and separated is important. You know, we try not to get too altruistic in what we're doing. You know, we don't think we're better than anyone else. We know that we're not going to be able to realize this promise of an AR map of the world that brings joy and utility and all that sort of thing without partnerships and that sort of thing. So this is not about like Niantic going on its own, but like, we are proud of the fact that we are helping maybe get that little nudge, just that little gentle, like, let's um, spend a little time together today in a park, or maybe you meet somebody new. We've got amazing user stories and many press outlets have actually written about these. If you just do a Google search, you know, whether it's, Marriages or people that are dealing with certain health ailments like diabetes or autism or these pretty major conditions where, you know, just getting out for a walk. I mean, we all know that and we see the studies, but what's the natural way that will give me the nudge to do that? So, again, I don't want to sound too altruistic, but we think that um, those daily or weekly moments of joy can be really, really important for a family or a group of friends or maybe even an opportunity to meet somebody that, you know, has a shared interest. Shifting gears, the second thing I would say is we've had. More so in Japan, but definitely globally, including here in the United States, we've had some amazing brand partnerships where we will try to find natural ways to integrate brands. Admittedly, brick and mortar retail was was kind of the place where we started because it was a natural fit. You know, you're out on a walk or you're trying to hatch an egg in Pokemon Go or you're trying to find, you know, a key creature or that sort of thing and where we will integrate, you know, a brand and their location, try to drive some footfall into their store. And we've got case studies, white papers you can see on our website on some of those success stories. But I think probably because of the kind of dense nature of a lot of the Japanese cities, particularly Tokyo, we've seen a lot of traction with a lot of brands over the years. And so I think that's a natural place to go. We have started to partner with CPG and other categories. Amazon is a current big partner of ours. We're doing a lot with their prime gaming team, but just finding natural ways to marry our mission and then figure out what is a brand, you know, what are their goals or their KPIs and how can we, with our kind of unique set of games and capabilities, how can we help them? But that's the starting point of that. And I think as HMD, you know, head-mounted displays and other kind of wearable computing starts to really take off, we're bummed that it keeps moving out the horizon, you know, I think as far as any kind of widespread adoption and mass market price points. But, you know, we all have to be patient, but we think we're well positioned to really, you know, help brands as that does start to happen. And I think our mobile centricity really makes us a natural fit for that because we can really help in a lot of different
2: ways to a lot of different companies. What you're really saying is Google Glass failed you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to come back better than ever, but it's not there yet.
1: I used my R&D sandbox metaphor earlier, I, I was asking about ingress, interest, but maybe you know this, Sam. We did a Google Glass integration with Fieldtrip, so yeah. um, I think it probably would not be in good form for me to say we failed or they failed or whatever, although, you know, it's gone. But, you know,
2: that learning is still important. It's all experiments, of course. Yeah.
1: But anyway, I'm glad that we experimented in those early days, because now we know more than we did.
2: <laughs> so, Mike, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about digital twins, and you mentioned the AR map. I'm a big fan that one of the next big areas of search and discovery is going to be in the physical world around us, but through digital layers. And one of the stories I really loved and went deep in was, and I'm forgetting, I know it's one of the Asian cities that their airport has a full digital twin of the airport so that their engineers can look and they can say, oh, you know what, the HVAC is out in this specific gate or the population density is too much because a plane is delayed and it can automatically reroute another plane to a different gate, for example which makes me think about what does generative AI bring when you overlay it to the tool sets and Lightship that you guys have? You know, how are you thinking about generative AI affecting gameplay, just, you know, living the world, mapping the world? What's your thoughts on generative AI?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a timely question, (laughs) Um, given the explosion of gen AI, you know, these days and just even the recent stuff that just happened with Microsoft and, you know, that team. I think that, there's a couple things. Number one, we're doing a lot of hackathons and that sort of thing both with our internal teams and also with bringing third-party devs in. I think there's some stuff that's been published where we have shown some of the prototypes and the examples of using just kind of basic LLM models, training them with some, you know, basic task and then with a um, kind of outdoor kind of use case in mind using some of our both our geo and our AR tools. There's one I really loved it's kind of a little historical tour of the Ferry Building in San Francisco. Cool. Which is also where we're located. Iconic. It is. Yes. And it's essentially the way that it got trained was you're in this location, there's already this information that we've captured in our database about the history of the Ferry Building and where you are and that sort of thing. But like the really simple, you know, lightweight thing that was done was We had it narrated by this salty old sea captain from like the late 1800s kind of thing. And so it brings information that's already in our POI database, our geodatabase. It brings it to life in a way that a static image or a caption or a title or a paragraph summary just, you know, it doesn't do it justice when you hear it from you know, some Captain Ahab type of character coming to life, it's so much more engaging. And so that's like one really small example. It was a hackathon. It was like, I don't know, like four hours or something like that, where we kind of married a basic gen AI model with some of our tools and capabilities. But those are the types of things that are coming. And now you think about, well, bringing your world to life, you know, again, with permission, if I have a digital twin that I want to take out with me to go on adventures or that sort of thing. I mean, it's pretty powerful. The second thing I'd say on the Gen AI side, and this is more practical from kind of a more marketing discipline perspective, is we're also doing a lot of test and iteration with regards to are there things we can do as it relates to asset production and copywriting and that sort of thing. And you still have to train it. It still has to be, you know, kind of right style and tone on brand and that sort of thing. But the reality is there are cost efficiencies to be had and we're not going to cut corners on quality Everything is still human reviewed and that sort of thing because of the expectations, you know, particularly from our IP partners. But it's something that we're definitely leaning into and trying to figure out how can these tools help us be more efficient and be quicker. Paid UA is probably the easiest example of that on the marketing side where we can much more efficiently do localized versions of a given piece of UA creative, whether it's a video or a static ad display ad you know, that sort of thing into multiple languages. So then my UA team can take it into this country and A-B test it and see if it performs better or worse than something else that was done by maybe one of our localization agencies. So those are the kind of things that we're doing, maybe more specifically day-to-day in my world. But the much more exciting stuff is my Captain Ahab example, which is where Brian McClendon and the platform team are doing a lot of experimentation. And you'll see a lot more examples of that. We'll share a lot more of that stuff in the future We'll be at GDC, we'll be at AWE, we'll be at all those kind of usual suspects this year and beyond. And we'll be excited to share that stuff. And frankly, open those tools up, you know, to our third-party devs, both on Unity as well as on the web.
3: I love that you just shared both of those two things from the sort of like niantic product development perspective, and then from your experience as a marketer, because I think a lot of the folks who listen to our pod and are part of our community, you know, they're in that space of like testing out how do I use Gen AI to make my display ads perform better in all the different markets that I need to serve. And, you know, it's funny that localization has been one of the most like popular, easy to like implement things that, you know, helps people start building the muscle of leveraging generative AI in their daily workflows without needing to do something. that's like, you know, completely never before done that requires a ton of like, you know, one product development and second, like legal and gives the most challenge when we think about things like IP. So I love that you brought up both of those two sides. You also just talked a little bit about the developer conferences where you all spend time and where you all show up. What do you think are are top of mind for gamers these days? Are gamers looking for this sort of mixed reality? Like, what are they asking for when they chat to a company like yours?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at like, data AIs, latest charts, and some of those sorts of things. You know, we are not in the number one genre of all mobile gaming as an example. You know, it's still growing for sure. There's certainly more popular categories, you know, social casino and those types of games. But we love the engagement that we're seeing and actually that some of our competitors are seeing, particularly in Japan. So we think that we're onto something and it's not just a one-trick pony Pokemon Go thing, we actually think that this will become more and more popular over time. I think as it relates to, you know, those conferences and stuff like that, I'm just, every day I'm blown away by the things that our Tokyo Studio team is creating and adding, you know, in partnership with Capcom on our Monster Hunter Now game, which is, it only launched on September 14th, but, you know, kind of top three game in Japan and we're starting to spread it out more globally now. Pikmin Bloom, I mentioned earlier, you know, that is just such a, a simple, lightweight you know, kind of companion to get you out on a walk and uh, do some mushroom battles with your friends and do some other lightweight, fun things. You know, our Pokemon Go studio here in the U.S. is, you know, they're just AAA. And I've worked with some amazing creative teams, all of whom I love, you know, working with Will Wright at Maxis on Sims products with Lucy Bradshaw and Luke Bartolet and so many teams over the years, the DICE team in Sweden on Battlefield. But yeah, we've got some amazing studios that are being supported by this amazing platform team and some of the innovations. Those conferences are the moments for us to showcase this stuff, both the trade ones as well as the consumer ones, you know, Comic-Con and Gamescom and some of those things, PAX. We were there in a big way this year. So, yeah, you're going to see more from us on that. And sometimes... If it doesn't line up with the conference, you know, we'll do a blog post on it and share it and give folks a preview. Hopefully not because of an APK teardown that we did not intend, um, (laughs) which happens a lot, unfortunately, but it's just passionate fans, you know, that want to get the early scoop, but more so because we're excited to kind of roll the stuff out and see the fan reaction. And hopefully it's all positive. These teams do amazing work. I love our dev teams and we're just here to help them, you know, kind of get those new features and functionality out to the fan
2: base. Mike, my final question for you relates to something just calling back that you mentioned earlier, it feels like the most successful gaming environments, if you will, are ones that really allow other creators to start to build into it, right? That could be a Minecraft, it could be a Fortnite, it could be a Roblox, it could be what you guys have with Lightspeed.
1: Yeah, we're big fans of all of those folks, by the way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And
2: so how are you guys encouraging? Because I think while today so much gaming is still happening on consoles and on computers and to some degree phones, there is a future coming that we all know is there, that is in the world around us. And it feels like you guys are positioned so well to be the operating system of that game environment, if you will. How are you encouraging creators to come and build on top of your toolkit?
1: First and foremost, like without Google Play, without you know, Apple's App Store, obviously Unity, we are a Unity shop. So you know, without Unity, we're not where we are. So We need them and without those partnerships you know we're nowhere so let me just first call out that you know those are kind of the current places where consumers you know kind of congregate they aggregate they do discovery and all those sorts of things on the app store side samsung galaxy store as well and then you know on the unity side we're trying to just continue to build our strong relationship with them we think ar foundation that whole layer is pretty innovative in and of itself so we're trying to find the natural ways that our tools can be exposed to unity developers in a more turnkey way, you know, versus having a oh, I got to go over here and I got to go get this SDK from Niantic with lightship and that sort of thing. You know, again, nothing to formally announce or anything, but we're very close with those folks. So, I think part of the answer is definitely going to be, you know, I don't want to get into oh, we're going to be the OS of a mixed reality or anything. What I'll say is there are going to be several strategic partnerships that I think together we will help build this future and again, we hope that it's one that's inclusive, that's open, that is Dev-friendly, you know, I mean, it's so hard right now to find audience, particularly in mobile. And so, you know, what are the things that we can do as a company to maybe help with that? It's right now not really our job, but what can we as a publisher, what can we do with Consortium or other publishers to come together to figure out ways that game developers, particularly indies, you know, can find audience for their, you know, very creative and mind-blowing things that so many of these indies create every day. The other thing I'd say on that is... Like any disruptive technology, this disruption that's going to come in spatial computing as it relates to you know, more digital information out in the real world. I mentioned open, but the other word that comes with that is responsible. So you mentioned, I think, Avery, you know, working with our legal teams and Gen AI and that sort of thing. That's the other thing. Our general counsel, you know, David Fuller and his team and, you know, the different um firms that we work with. Yeah. We're trying to make sure that whatever we do is done in a responsible way. And again, with kind of a user first kind of mindset so that we're doing the right thing. We don't want anyone to feel like, you know, there's big brother stuff happening with your data as you're walking around the world. We're very careful about that stuff. And yeah, we like to not just think of ourselves, but I think our actions and behaviors show that we're very responsible and we're going to continue to to be that way.
3: Awesome. That's a nice sort of confident statement. And I know it's something that many folks are looking for from industry leaders. So just as we sort of wrap up here, Mike, it's been so nice to have you on the pod and so nice to sort of hear your insights and your perspective. Putting on your CMO hat for a minute, what do you think brands should know about AR and sort of the coming connected future? You've hinted a little bit that you're not going to make an announcement, but it seems like you all are sort of working with the industry to make some big things happen. So any advice or guidance you would give marketers who are trying to pay attention and understand what's coming next?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is reach out and engage with us. You know, we're here, we're a small company, so we can't get to everyone. We don't have like an army of salespeople and partners with every major agency. We have a lot of those connections and we're well-networked. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, I think some of these brands taking the initiative, you know, even to find us. I think that's one thing. Don't be shy, we're here. I will say there's a lot of the large, you know, cpg luxury travel i mean we have talked to a lot of the market leaders in those spaces about ways that they can use ar and we're a member of the iab and so we'll attend things like the playfronts to help educate the market and educate brands that want to get you know in gaming or gaming adjacent or that sort of thing i think that there's been a nice road paved by a lot of companies including you know epic with fortnite of course with roblox and other companies as well that have got some really great use cases to point to in terms of how brands can integrate, you know, with kind of the metaverse, if you like that term, or kind of gaming audiences. But as it relates to AR specifically, yeah, I think we're gonna continue to try to do a good job of sharing kind of our use cases, our white papers, the things that we see working for other brands. I mentioned the Japanese success stories that we've had and how do those translate into a market like Germany or France or Taiwan or South Korea. So we're gonna do our job on that. But a lot of it is because we're small is, you know, if you want to learn more, you know, reach out, we're here and um, we'd love to help
2: educate.
3: Love that. So reach out to Niantic. Exactly. Kind of. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Mike, thank you. For giving your time. So generous. Really loved your insights, your wisdom. Frankly, your experience in this world is like more than most people have. So I think it's just been really wonderful to hear what you guys are building and why it's important. I think people still don't realize how big Pokemon Go is today amongst all the other titles you have. And I think you guys have just been crushing it and have positioned yourself so well for the future. So it was really just a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate y'all having me on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks,
1: Mike. Take care, y'all. Bye-bye.
3: I feel like that was maybe our first AR-focused guest and couldn't have thought of a better person than Mike.
2: Yeah, Mike was great. I love what Niantic is doing. I've been playing with their systems now for over a decade. As we mentioned, Ingress, it's a very complex game and it takes a lot of time.
3: Not for the week.
2: There is a passionate audience of people who still play that game. But I've always loved AR. I've always think mixed reality is the real unlock over virtual reality. So that was really smart and wonderful. And I'm really glad we had him and his perspective I love that we're also just branching out to so many different categories that all relate to each other, Avery. So that's been really fun with you.
3: Awesome. Well, Sam, it's interesting to sort of see the evolution of Gen Z. And, you know, listeners, thank you for being with us. Thank you, some of you all, for sharing your Spotify wrapped, which is amazing. Shout out to some of our favorite folks who took the time to share that they listen to Gen Z every week. And we will catch you all next week.
2: Thanks a lot, Gen Z.